Um, and with that, I'd like to welcome uh, Anna Adachi Muhiha to uh, uh, introduce today's speaker. She is the director of health the Health Promotion Research Center at Dartmouth and is an associate professor of community and family medicine, pediatrics, and of the Dartmouth Institute. Um, thank you, Anna. Thank you. What an honor to be asked to present Dr. Eduardo Sanchez <laughs> as today's Grand Rounds and keynote speaker for the ninth annual C. Everett Coop Tobacco Treatment Conference to celebrate Coop's centenarian anniversary in conquering the tobacco epidemic. Back in 2014, I saw Dr. Sanchez speak in Atlanta at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention as part of a National Prevention Research Center Network meeting in a room of about 200 public health researchers from 26 universities and schools of medicine from across the country. He captivated us with his presentation about Life Simple 7, which we, we, which we will hear about today. His talk was so engaging that the person standing next to me was willing to risk missing his plane flight home just to listen to the end of the talk. So the memory of that keynote stayed with me. And three years later, when I had the opportunity to put forward ideas for speakers for today, he was at the top of my list. And we are delighted that he accepted the invitation. Dr. Sanchez is an expert in prevention and population health. He has many degrees including an MD from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, an MPH from the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston School of Public Health, and an MS in Biomedical Engineering from Duke University. Dr. Sanchez is board certified in family medicine. He is the Chief Medical Officer for Prevention and Chief of the Center for Health Metrics and Evaluation for the American Heart Association. His prior roles include Deputy Chief Medical Officer for the American Heart Association, Vice President and CMO for Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, Director of the Institute for Health Policy at the University of Texas School of Public Health, and Commissioner of the Texas Department of State Health Services. He serves on the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's Roundtable on Obesity Solutions, and on the board of directors of Trust for America's Health, Academy Health, the Public Health Institute, and the Catch Global Foundation. Dr. Sanchez has received many awards, including awards that refer to his continued commitment to public health, making significant contributions to the advancement of public health, demonstrating a genuine concern for the health needs of society, and for outstanding service in addressing healthcare disparities. Please join me in offering Dr. Sanchez a warm welcome. Thank you, so Thank you Anne. That, that, was, um, that was a very, very, very kind um, introduction. Um, and there are still those times when I listen to what you say and I just think, is that me? Um, <laughs> I am so pleased and honored to be here. Um, I was invited by Anne, and I, I tried to figure out as quickly as possible um, how I could say yes, because I find myself in way too many cities on way too many weeks, uh, but here I am. Um, two people that are, are here that I want to call out. Um, one is Mark Krieger, 
um, who is uh, uh, somebody who I had the opportunity to work with at the American Heart Association. Um, as you know, Mark is the director of the Heart and uh, Vascular Center here at, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Can you just stand for a second in case people... Stand up, man, if people don't know who you are. Um, and um, Mark, served as, Mark served as president of the American Heart Association, and during his tenure, he elevated um, and made much more visible to many of us um, the importance of vascular disease and a focus on vascular disease, along with thinking about the heart and thinking about the brain as it relates to stroke. Another person who's here with me um, is uh, somebody whose uh, bloodline I share, um, Ruth Sanchez, who is my aunt, who lives in Concord, New Hampshire. Um, she taught at uh, St. Paul School. Um, I have a daughter, Ruth, who's in medical school, uh, named for my aunt, who um, at many, many times of my life provided me um, unconditional love, um, support, um, attaboys at times, and whatever culture I was exposed to. She lived in New York City for a number of years. Um, I have to thank her for balancing what was my upbringing in Corpus Christi, Texas, where it was just about the beach and music. So uh, thank you, Ruth, for being here. <laughs> um, a couple of things. I, I didn't realize that I was um, doing a twofer this morning, um, uh, but I'm really pleased to be here. I do think that those of us who are public health folk uh, can and should be really proud um, and I'd say primary care folk and, and medical care folks should be really proud of how in the United States of America we've taken um, tobacco use from where it was in the 60s to where it is now. Um, I think conquering is the appropriate verb because we haven't conquered it yet and we still have work to do and we keep finding new, um, new challenges, um, e-cigarettes and vaping being one of those. So I, don't, I don't think we really know uh, what the challenges that are going to present themselves with vaping are going to be. C. Everett Koop, um, like what an honor to be here and, 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 and be a part of this. I'm going to spend a couple of minutes telling you a C. Everett Koop story. A few years ago, I was invited by David Satcher to be the moderator of a uh, panel conversation uh, that was going to include all of the former Surgeons General of the United States. Um, and I accepted, and I was doing that. And, and, and this was going to be on C-SPAN. And um, unfortunately, the arrangement was such that we were on a stage and I was at a podium on one side of the stage and all of the surgeons general were lined up in a straight line um, along the other side of the stage. So I was a little bit worried about um, the way that I was going to go about moderating time. Um, sometimes you have to tell people that they're running out of time, and Anne's got the little cue cards to let me know when there's five minutes, one minute, and stop. Uh, so, but I didn't have a way to do that because I wasn't in front of them. So what I told them was that what I would do is if, I, if it seemed like they might go over, I would start walking over in their direction. So things are going well. Um, everyone spoke, and towards the end of the panel, when um, Dr. Koop was supposed to provide kind of an overview, I looked over and Dr. Koop was fast asleep on the stage. <laughs> and so 
Um, this is C-SPAN. Um, this is a moderated thing, and I'm trying to figure out, like, I can't just walk over because he's not going to see me walking over. So, I, you know, I sort of saunter over, and I just gave him a little nudge. Now, he's fast asleep, so my worry is I don't want to startle him because that will be really bad, right? Um, so, anyway, long and, long and short of it is it all worked out, but... The man was just fast asleep, and this was towards the, uh, you know, this was after a long and illustrious career and a long, long panel conversation. So um, it was, I didn't blame him for falling asleep, but it put uh, the moderator in an awkward position. So um, hopefully I won't fall asleep while I'm talking, um, and uh, um, I think we'll we'll get started. Um, A couple of other things that I wanted to mention Um, I am involved, and the American Heart Association has a tobacco regulation and addiction center that's part of what probably y'all are aware of, the Tobacco Centers of Regulatory Science, uh, which are funded by the FDA and the NIH um, to assure that the regulations uh, related to tobacco are, um, uh, are based in science, and I'm, I'm involved in, in some of that work. Uh, I just got invited to be a part of that center, uh, and I spend more time on the phone calls listening, taking notes, and then spending the rest of my day looking things up than I do um, contributing, but hopefully I will be contributing as time goes on. So again, I'm very, very pleased to be here. Let me get oriented here, and, and let's, let's, let's get started. Um, y'all know what the leading causes of death are. I don't need to list these out. The ones in red are the ones that the Heart Association thinks about very, very um, um, deliberately every single day, cardiovascular disease and stroke. Uh, number one and number five. Um, um, We are beginning to understand that we better begin thinking about diabetes as an organization. And in fact, we were engaged in an internal huddle where we brought together uh, volunteers and staff um, to begin thinking about diabetes. You know as well as I do, diabetes is a cardiovascular risk factor, cardiovascular disease risk factor. And um, as you know, Oh, and hold on a second. Let me back up one more thing. Uh, I just want to repeat. I am a family physician who works in the American Heart Association. And I say that because the American Heart Association has begun to realize that the work of addressing the cardiovascular health of uh, Americans uh, has to involve primary care. Um, 70% of cholesterol management happens in primary care. Um, 70% of... uh, Uh, Hypertension management happens in, did I say that both times? Uh, Cholesterol and hypertension, about 70%. And diabetes is a little over 50%, according to the American Board of Family Medicine. So the action happens in primary care, and AHA has to be um, a part of that. Now, it took them 20 years to figure that out. I say that because back in about 1999, I served as the Uh, president of the Austin affiliate of the American Heart Association and was saying then we need to get family physicians uh, uh, involved. Um, But let me go back to this. Diabetes is another place where the AHA has realized we've got some work to do. That's the list of things that kill you based on diagnosis. When we think about um, um, where we stand as a nation um, and compare ourselves to others, 
you don't need me to tell you, because you've seen it over and over again, that as it relates to heart disease, um, we are not doing too well compared to our peer countries. Americans reach age 50 with a less favorable cardiovascular risk profile than peers in Europe. I want you to remember 50, because I'm going to come back to it in a little while. And with obesity and diabetes, I can tell you that as, as we've looked at what's been happening over the past 10 years, whereas we are... Um, at least holding steady or moving in the right direction on most of the elements of Life Simple 7 on obesity, we are absolutely, without a doubt, moving in the wrong direction. And I believe that that will have a um, secondary effect down the road, as you know, as you can predict, around diabetes and some of the other cardiovascular risk factors that we uh, worry about. Um, now, what I thought was the second slide is this one, which looks at causes of death not by diagnosis, but by the things that might be the, the that might lead to those uh, diagnos diagnoses. Um, and I don't know that you can read this list, but at the top of the list is tobacco. It continues to be um, um, at the top of the list of things that kill us uh, prematurely that we could prevent. Um, Hence, again, we have not conquered, we are conquering, but we've got work to do and got to sort of double down. High blood pressure is second on that list. Um, and when I get to Life Simple 7, and you can come back and um, check me when I, when, when, when I get to the slide on Simple 7, you will find that every single element on here except alcohol use is encompassed in Life Simple 7. Um, and uh, the, the way this slide is uh, set up, and again, I, I apologize for the quality of the slide. On the legend here are the um, disease categories to which these um, uh, behaviors or conditions contribute. So high blood pressure is almost entirely a cardiovascular disease, if not entirely. But smoking, as an example, you know, leads to um, heart disease on the one hand, lung cancer on the other hand, and, and uh, uh, COPD um, um, as well, all captured in the legend. Now, looking at this a different way, done by uh, uh, Yang uh, uh, Jama, um, you look at deaths associated with the top risk factors. Um, and the ones that are bolded, I'm going to clue you in, um, are Life Simple 7. Um, I'm not going to read these to you, except, again, look over here at the number of deaths attributed to each of those. Dietary risks is at the top of the list. Some people will quibble about whether that should be at the top or smoking. But again, look at the list, smoking and high blood pressure prominently in the top three. The Heart Association um, has dedicated itself to building healthier lives free of cardiovascular disease and stroke. Uh, but I think Mark would agree that um, at least for the, um, the 30 years or so before this most recent decade, the focus has primarily been about reducing deaths due to cardiovascular disease and stroke. Um, I think we do a great job of that as an organization, focusing on what happens when bad things happen and you're in the hospital, what happens if, you, uh, if bad things happen if you're in the hospital, um, uh, what bad things happen 
uh, if bad things happen in the community, uh, sudden cardiac arrest. We are the organization that has been all about the science that tells us what to do up to and including now doing um, complete uh, only chest compression CPR um, to uh, staying alive, remember that, um, and have gotten uh, uh, training on CPR down to a, a much more um, um, manageable way of delivering and a much more predictable way of getting the desired outcome, somebody who survives. Um, but we also came to realize that it's not enough to address things after bad things happen and became uh, very convinced that there was no way to achieve the objective and the goals that we had set for ourselves without focusing on improving cardiovascular health. So about a decade ago, and I know that Mark was involved in some of this and some of these discussions, the Heart Association expanded its scope of responsibility and said we are not only going to commit ourselves to reducing cardiovascular disease um, death and stroke death by 20%, but we are going to get into the business of trying to improve cardiovascular health by 20% by the year 2020. Now, I'll say it here, the 20% goals on both of those um, might have been the fact that 20 went with 20, and that, that, that worked really well, um, uh, but I won't say anything more than that. 20% um, by the year 2020. What is cardiovascular health, you might ask yourself. Um, so it turned out, let me just go back for a second. We set that goal, and Mark, tell me if I'm wrong. Then we, we realized, hmm, we just created a goal, and we don't know how we're going to measure that goal. So um, we quickly convened a group of people. Don Lloyd-Jones, you may know the name, um, led a group that went about trying to define what cardiovascular health is. Um, they looked at the literature as it existed, looked at epidemiological studies, looked at some of the cohort studies, and sort of narrowed uh, the definition down to these seven items. Um, so kind of in the spirit of the World Health Organization, starting with cardiova uh, ideal cardiovascular health is not only the absence of cardiovascular disease, but it is the optimization the optimization, I don't know if that word is there, but it is the optimization of seven, seven factors. Smoking status, how you eat, your diet, level of physical activity, BMI, blood pressure, cholesterol, and glucose. Um, that's defined. There is a cottage industry um, on Life Simple 7. Uh, you, you, if you uh, search Life Simple 7, you will find any number of studies that have been done that over and over and over again um, tell us what we would believe was the case. That is, the healthier you are from a Simple 7 standpoint, the better off you are um, from all of the different ways that, that um, Simple 7 has been looked at. People who've had stroke. Um, looking at some of the other cohort studies that weren't originally looked at, looking at um, 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 people who uh, looking at people who are depressed, um, any number of ways life simple seven seems to confer what, again what we would believe to be some protective effect, particularly from a cardiovascular disease standpoint, but also from a diabetes standpoint, from an osteoarthritis standpoint, and the list goes on and on. Here's the seven, so let me move on. And I just want to 
bring back the other slide and circle again the seven that were there. And if we were to add these numbers up, there's just a whole lot of lives that we might be able to, um, at the very least, extend life um, and avert death sooner rather than later. So this slide is meant to convey um, how in each of the categories of simple seven, we have stratified um, the, 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 the various states into poor, intermediate, and ideal. And what you'll find when you can spend the time to look at the, 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 the small print um, is that these conform with um, what we have used in the past clinically or are using in the present. I say what we have used in the past clinically because with cholesterol, um, we are engaged in the conversation about how we transition from that to um, something that reflects the way we are recommending uh, we think about cholesterol management. In other words, um, how do you incorporate in scores from the um, atherosclerotic, um, atherosclerotic uh, disease risk estimator and, and have that be what ends up tearing people? But remember, I mentioned 50 years um, a while ago. And if, this is research done by Don Lloyd-Jones, you get to 50 years old and you are in this green zone in all of these categories, the likelihood that you're going to live to 80 or 90 years old is way and, and with a good quality of life is way higher than if you are somebody who's got a little bit of yellow or a little bit of red. <clears throat> now, um, one thing that you probably know is that you don't get to green at 50 by um, realizing that you're going to turn 50 in a month and thinking that you're going to get with the program. It is really about a lifelong pattern that um, started probably in childhood um, and got you there. Now, having said that, um, if at 49 years and 11 months you say, ooh, I'm a little too much over here, it is not too late to try to move in this direction. And again, some of the studies that have already been done post-stroke say, there is a value in getting to this place or moving towards this place, if at all possible. So don't despair. And then the other is that if you did get here by 50, uh, one of the reasons that you're going to get to 80 or 90 is that you've already got sort of the life habits that are going to protect you. And as I was talking earlier to... Um, Dr. Bartel and Ann um, about uh, the work that's being done at the Health Promotion Research Center of Dartmouth. I say it that way because it is using a name that's in distinction to the prevention centers. I'll get to that later. And I love the fact that it's about promoting health, uh, which, uh, which actually grounds it in all the things that we do that have nothing to do with doctors or hospitals, no disrespect to Dartmouth Hitchcock, um, whereas prevention still kind of grounds you in medical care. And for most people on most days, that's not what's on their mind. I will use this as a moment to digress for a second. I do that sometimes. 
Our tagline at the American Heart Association is life is why. Um, and life is why is a really important thing to remember as we think about person-centeredness or patient-centeredness. I promise you that top of mind for our patients is not what their cholesterol level is or isn't, is not necessarily even what medication they're taking today. It is about a good life. And what we need to do, I think, is to acknowledge that that's what drives people, and we try to find the ways to complement and to help that good life be realized by the work that we do. Okay, let me get back with the program. I'm sorry. So... Um, Here's, a, here's a, a nice graph that I think captures um, the value of Life Simple 7. On the x-axis, um, uh, the number of ideal, sim, uh, uh, ideal Simple 7 factors, and on the y-axis is mortality, deaths per, hundred, to deaths per thousand. And you can see the more Life Simple 7 ideal, uh, the lower the mortality. Now, the distribution of Life Simple 7 continuum um, is variable. And this is kind of a busy slide. I wish I could unpack it a little bit better. But there's a couple of things here that I think are critical that probably don't surprise you. Most people are somewhere in the middle. But when you look in each of these categories, what you find is that um, percentage uh, at, at these various levels varies by race, ethnicity. And you can predict what is on here, which is Latinos and African Americans are not faring as well from a simple seven perspective as whites. Um, and I'm going to get to that, I think, in a moment uh, where I talk a little bit about social factors that might um, be the reason why this distribution is the case. It's also the reminder to us that understanding the context in which people live is really, really important, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But um, race ethnicity uh, confers a slightly different distribution of Life Simple 7. So this is a slide that came out of some work that we did with Nielsen. Uh, Nielsen, the people who do ratings and surveys and those sorts of things. Um, and the bottom line here is that few people meet Life Simple 7 goals. And I think that according to Don Lloyd-Jones, it's less than 1% of the population is at, at, at full ideal, that green zone. Uh, most of us have a little bit of red and a little bit of yellow. Um, for non-smokers, um, you know, for smoking, we're doing pretty well, and we talked about that. But as it relates to the percentage of people who are getting the recommended amount of physical activity a week, it's only 25%, according to this, that lines up pretty well with what CDC has found in what's in NHANES. And then eating a healthy diet, almost always 45% compared to 55%. That's self-reported in NHANES. That number is substantially lower for the dietary component. Um, so we think we eat healthy. Um, if we actually looked, eh, maybe not as healthy as um, the science would tell us we ought to be eating. Um, I'm not going to go through this slide. This is one of these busy slides that, um, uh, that, that we at AHA developed to sort of help us map the work that we do. But I will say to you that, that one of the things that we did focus on having to do with Life Simple 7 is increasing the percentage of all Americans who live in environments that support 
Life Simple 7. It gets back to this idea that there's this maldistribution, if you will, this variability that might have to do more with the conditions in which people live than their knowledge and their desire, maybe, to make a difference in their lives. Um, and we want to, of course, increase the percentage of all Americans who optimize um, their cardiovascular health, as I mentioned earlier. Now, this is actually a reflection of some work done by Taylor and Bradford, uh, and uh, it came out of public affairs. But I just want to read this quote because it's the reminder that maybe it's not just where people live. And despite the fact that I've talked about clinical care, uh, this, this uh, as not being necessarily where we need to focus our attention, um, this is uh, a a, a different way of, of perhaps saying the same thing. Um, an ever-growing body of literature suggests that broadening Americans' historically narrow focus on medicine in pursuit of improved national health may ultimately hold the key to unraveling the spend more, get less paradox. So the spend more, get less paradox, as you can probably imagine, is that we are the country that spends the most on medical care per capita. Uh, we're not the country, we're not not the healthiest country in the United in the world. Um, is that news to you about the not being the healthiest country in the world? Despite what we might hear and despite what we might think, we are not the healthiest by any stretch of the imagination. And you probably know some of the work that's been done by Bradford and Taylor, where they've looked at um, spend on social services and have found that when we compare compared to other countries in Europe, um, what they find is that what Bradford and Taylor found was that when you do the aggregate of medical care. Whoa. The tone that you just heard indicates a code red within the complex. Flashing stroke indicates that it's all right. That, this is the place where one would hope it happens and where one would hope there's an appropriate response. Um, so, so all, all good. Um, and and, and, and the, 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 key, the, the bottom line key is that while the spend may be the same, social services plus um, clinical care, the, the ratio of expense, the ratio of spend is um, flipped in those countries more on social services, they end up spending less on clinical care, at least one might, um, one might conclude. Um, on the other hand, we spend less on social services, and, and some say that that results in more things that we could have prevented. Um, and I would put some of those social services, where I'm going to get to in a minute, actually fall into the prevention realm, because if we did those and when we uh, appropriated the resources to do it, we might avert some of the medical conditions that are rise as a result of the conditions not being aligned with people's desire to be healthier. Um, we have focused on doing things in community. I'm going to move through this slide because I'm looking at the clock and I want to be mindful of time, uh, but I want to go to this slide. This is a slide that reflects some work done by Sandro Galea, uh, who's the dean of the uh, School of Public Health at Boston University. And um, this slide did an estimation of deaths attributable to social factors. And if you look um, at first some of the things that are on here, low education level, low social support, individual poverty, what I, what, I, what I actually want you to focus on as well is that if you go over here and you look at 
the hundreds of thousands of deaths that are attributable to those social factors, when you look at low education level and you see that it's about 250,000 deaths that at least this researcher would say can be attributed to low education level, um, educational attainment is on that list of things that are causing hundreds of thousands of deaths around which we can get kind of very, very excited and animated about. And if we're going to get excited and animated about tobacco, which we should, which kills approximately twice as many people, um, I think I'm going to make the argument that maybe those of us in public health and those of us even in clinical care who really want to make a difference should understand that there are these social factors that may in fact do more to save lives and keep people from developing illness than some of the things that we have traditionally been doing in the clinical space. Um, I love this slide because, uh, again, it's just the reminder that sometimes we can convince ourselves that, oh, that's an esoteric topic, educational attainment. And I would say not so much if indeed um, educational attainment might be responsible for this number of deaths. Um, you might know some of this research. I'm going to try to just paraphrase without reading from it. Um, it's the, some of the moving to opportunity work that's been done that suggests that when people who were living in really low-income housing um, 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 areas move to less um, low-income housing areas, not only did they move from one place to another, but there seems to be a, a conference related to that, um, that that includes lower incidence of diabetes, obesity, and depression. Oh, and I've got it here. And when somebody tried to do a um, kind of what's the value of that improvement in life, it comes out to be a $13,000 per year um, kind of value add. It's not money in their pocket. It's $13,000 as related to maybe um, a more of a quality kind of way of looking at things. And $13,000 when you are living um, at poverty level is a significant amount of money. It can be a sense of perceived wealth um, that might otherwise not be addressed. And if indeed um, obesity, diabetes, and depression go down, maybe we need to think about how to move people from these lower income communities to um, higher, uh, less, less um, poverty income communities. They didn't exactly move into affluent parts of um, um, their communities. Have y'all seen these life expectancy zip code maps? And I'm sorry if you can't see the detail. But this is a map of um, Chicago. And this is actually um, the subway line. And it just shows that where you get off to, uh, where you get off to spend your day after work um, may be, uh, 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 may reflect the, the life expectancy in that zip code. And what I want you to, I'm going to tell you that the difference between um, the lowest and the highest is 16 years of life. And I love the fact that I'm at Dartmouth, 
um, the place that developed the Dartmouth um, Atlas, the place that has reminded us that we should not be okay with variability as it relates to the delivery of clinical care and the outcomes we get. And I would say to you, can we sit back and not be incensed that in the same community, on the basis of a few stops, there could be 16 years of difference of life expectancy. And at least, at the very least, asked ourselves, can this be addressed, and how what might we address it? Raj Chetty's work, amazing work, um, is work that I think um, exemplifies this, because the other thing that we've learned with Raj Chetty's work is that if you live in... New York or San Francisco poor, it's better than living in and have a high, a, a low life expectancy. You're better off than living in Birmingham or Dallas or Oklahoma City, um, which is going to bring your life expectancy down. Because back to what I said about Bradford and Taylor, the spend on social services is lower in those three communities I mentioned at the end. And I live in Dallas, so um, don't think that I'm um, sort of um, picking on a particular city, um, and uh, Boston, I mean, New York, San Francisco, maybe even Boston are places where the spend on social services may be more in line or moving towards a place where you can actually affect life expectancy. You know, I created this slide. I don't like this slide. We're moving on. Um, so one of the other things that I, I am, I am a public health guy. Um, for four years, I served as a local public health officer in Austin, Texas. For five years, I ran the state's health department in Texas. Um, the past few weeks have been um, ones where I've uh, thought a lot about my time. I was the, the, the director of the um, health department at the time that Katrina and Rita happened. Uh, so, so responding to hurricanes is um, uh, something that's been top of mind for me, and I've been watching and trying to um, watch and think about what have we learned as a nation in 12 years since the last really, really, really bad hurricanes, at least from a Texas perspective. Um, um, Harvey, and I was in Houston yesterday, uh, and you would think that Houston has recovered. Uh, but like so many of these things, it's, it's the hidden, it's the stuff that's not in sort of the normal course of commerce and business where um, there are still a, a significant amount of disruption. Um, and I'll just finish by one other, just continue on the hurricane theme. Uh, my, my grandmother, my, mater my paternal grandmother, Ruth's mother, was Puerto Rican. And so um, please, if you have any extra dollars or any extra prayers or any extra thoughts, whether it's Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, um, Houston, uh, Florida, please think about what you might do to make a difference. People's lives have been disrupted in serious ways, and those that live um, in places that are more like this, the 69-year life expectancy um, disproportionately and adversely affected. Um, so um, sorry for that. Um, public health. We, we really don't spend enough on public health, and the evidence is, I hope I have this slide here, that increasing or decreasing spend on public health re results in an increase in deaths, infant deaths, heart disease deaths, diabetes deaths, cancer deaths, influenza deaths. There is a value to investing in public health in addition to social services, and we don't do that, and I worry, I, 
I worry a lot that in this climate, in states like mine and in our country right now, we are going to continue to um, divest from public health. And I say to you, find ways also to be a voice. The American Heart Association is a voice that says we have to have a robust public health system. The, the, the gains that we made around tobacco came as a result of um, public health strategies as well as clinical care strategies working um, um, in, in, in complement with one another. Public health plays a number of roles. Um, I decided that C was the word of the day, collect data, convene um, community stakeholders, communicate findings, connect stakeholders, and help co-create solutions. And the degree to which any community efforts are going on and the health department is not at the table, I would say shame on you, get the health department at the table. They have capacity, um, they have a desire, um, and they can really add and complement whatever efforts might be going on. Um, primary care and public health, um, uh, a, a report by IOM that said there is great opportunity for primary care and public health to work together, and I'm going to try to show you a couple of examples of where that has happened. I think U.S. smoking and what's happened in this country over the last um, 50 to 60 years is absolutely about a combination of public health approaches with um, primary care and even specialty care approaches. The cardiologists um, speaking out for the public policies, the primary care docs being the first line of contact to ask that question, um, are you a smoker? Um, are you ready to quit? Um, and public health using the strategies um, that are uh, um, complemented and supported by advocates to increase taxes, um, to create indoor smoking um, areas, and and thirdly, to adequately fund comprehensive tobacco control programs. That's the trifecta. I think we're beginning to realize that perhaps raising tobacco age to 21 is another part of the, another uh, arrow in the quiver that can bring us even closer to conquering tobacco use in the United States. Um, diabetes is my new favorite example of a, of a public health kind of um, um, medical care uh, complementary approach to addressing an issue. As you probably know, prediabetes has a prevalence rate of about one in three adults. Prediabetes um, has a, um, a, a, a progression to diabetes incidence rate of 11%. And you probably know this data better than I do, uh, that the Diabetes Prevention Program demonstrated that lifestyle intervention, lifestyle intervention that includes basically three essential components of Life Simple 7 results in a dramatic reduction in the incidence of prediabetes to diabetes or diabetes from uh, prediabetes compared to usual care. Uh, and we are, as an organization, beginning to realize, the American Heart Association, that the untapped potential of diabetes prevention program is something we need to better understand. Untapped potential, well, what are those elements? It's healthy eating, physical activity, it does include health coaching, so we've come to realize um, helping people with behavioral change is essential. Uh, and we learned that in tobacco. We knew that, we learned it, and why we don't think it would work, it should be applied to healthy eating and physical activity is beyond me. Um, and maybe I'm being a bit harsh by saying that. It's just the reminder that behavioral, um, um, motivational interviewing, attaboys, whatever you want to call them, need to be an essential part of how we think about 
Caring for people, caring for populations, and caring for patients. The idea that, and the one thing about the diabetes prevention program is, I think it probably ends up needing to be a, a chronic program, maybe intense for the 18 weeks, and then it becomes more of a maintenance program, just like all the other things we know. If you quit doing it and you walk away, you will see some reversion. The good news with diabetes prevention program is that it has the slowest, the slowest return to um, baseline of any weight loss program out there. I say weight loss on purpose because maybe the diabetes prevention program, as I look at the um, detail, because the thing I, I miss saying is that it's healthy life, healthy eating, physical activity that results in weight loss, which is the key to this reduction in incidence. Maybe we ought to be thinking about the diabetes prevention program. Maybe we ought to have a different name for it. Maybe it ought to be the cardiovascular disease prevention program. And maybe, because the evidence suggests that DPP seems to result in lower blood pressure, how could it not? Um, and also seems to result in lower cholesterol. How could it not? And so I would say DPP maybe ought to be coined the Life Simple 7 program. But I probably have lots of battles to, 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 to sort of engage in with lots of stakeholders, including the CDC and someone named Ann Albright. Any of you who do um, work in this space know who Ann Albright is, a, a, a great human being and a great person to work with. You know, I'm going to go to, in the interest of time, I'm going to go to um, the things that we are trying to do um, at the American Heart Association to address um, public health. But first, let me talk about the PRCs. The PRCs have been jewels um, in the world of um, understanding public health science and then the translation of public health science. And so um, here are uh, uh, four examples of work that's been done. Um, this is a slide that I got, saw last night. And so let me, let's pretend that there's a box in here for the um, Dartmouth Health Promotion Research Center. CATCH is school-based health promotion. Uh, the main Youth Obesity Collaborative, also trying to address youth obesity. Um, workplace solutions is something we're really interested in. I'm going to talk about it in a little bit. And here's tobacco again. And the work that's being done here at Dartmouth, um, uh, primarily focusing on um, addressing the um, lifestyle challenges, um, I'll put it that way, uh, that, that present opportunity that are faced by people in community mental health settings, including both obesity, which means healthy eating, physical activity, and also tobacco use. You probably know that people with mental illness have a 25-year um, reduction in life expectancy. And so back again, if we were going to get um, um, think that something was urgent, addressing life expectancy in people with mental illness ought to be at the top of our list of things that ought to get addressed. Um, one thing that happens over and over is that uh, I get asked the question, how are we going to pay for that public health? And how are we going to pay for those social services? So I will spend a moment on this particular slide. This was work done um, at a workshop by IOM. But at around the same time, AARP released another um, similar uh, report on the, um, I don't like to use the word waste. I kind of pull that straight out. I like to use the word um, injudicious. Injudiciously spent dollars in medical care. And they would suggest, this IOM workshop suggests there's $750 billion or so of money that might be better used differently. 
Um, when I think about the Dartmouth Atlas and I think about the work that's been done, it also demonstrates there's this variability. And if we could move the, if we could reduce the variability, um, moving towards higher quality, I believe that there are dollars there that if we could reappropriate could make a huge difference. So I'm going to go here. I'm going to end here. Things that the American Heart Association are doing that line up with Life Simple 7 in very different ways. Um, one is Voices for Healthy Kids. Voices for Healthy Kids is our campaign for tobacco-free kids around childhood obesity. And its focus is on policy change. I would say to you the poster child right now of the work that we've done in Voices for Healthy Kids is uh, developing the strategy, um, analyzing the policy around soda taxes at a community level. And the evidence, um, um, when it succeeds, the evidence about the outcomes is quite compelling and tells us this is a strategy we should continue to pursue. Um, soda consumption goes down. And if the dollars are being appropriated to the right things, in Philadelphia, those dollars are going to early childhood education. Remember what I said about educational attainment. That's a very appropriate um, 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 reappropriation of dollars saved. I'm going to move on to the next. Target BP. Target BP is a, a, a partnership that we have with the American Medical Association that has acknowledged that if indeed one out of three American adults has high blood pressure, and if indeed high blood pressure leads to preventable heart attacks, strokes, heart failure, kidney disease, and the list is long, perhaps the American Heart Association, in the name of stepping up, can partner and begin to make a difference. So we have this program where we are focused on primary care. We are focusing on primary care that provides care for the um, most likely to um, have high blood pressure, the disproportionately adversely affected. Federally qualified health centers are among those. And um, what we are uh, trying to do, and one of the reasons is that, as you know, uh, hypertension prevalence, um, hypertension awareness, and uh, hypertension treatment and control vary by race, ethnicity, not looking so good for African Americans and Latinos, depending on the category you look at, um, and opportunity to make a difference. Um, and um, I'm just going to go here to say uh, it is a quality improvement approach. Uh, the, uh, the AMA has developed a, uh, a portfolio of um, a portfolio that gives attention to three areas. One is measuring accurately. Uh, one of the things that we don't do so well in clinical care is measure blood pressure accurately. So we are spending a lot of time on that. We believe that people who do blood pressure measurement should be certified just like people are certified in CPR. Not as hard to do. It's just demonstrating that you've got the competency and the skill and you can do it over again. Um, um, getting over clinical inertia is the second part. Sometimes we docs see a patient and we'll say, ooh, your blood pressure is 142 over 92. Why don't we, let, let's just try lifestyle and we'll see you back a little bit later. Um, I, we're, we 
we have the position that you need to act aggressively quickly. If you can back off on medications, that's a good thing. I do want to be clear. Lifestyle modification, top of the list. Dash diet, top of the list. But rather than say, oh, maybe this was a dot, 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 it's a this is an urgent matter. Let's get it taken care of. And the last is partnering with uh, community and others. What I want to show you here is that um, thus far in this effort, we have engaged engaged um, practices that are serving over 3 million people with high blood pressure. And if we can even address, get half of those um, who don't have their blood pressure under control, under control, um, we will be doing more with this campaign two years out of the shoot than we've ever done with a campaign um, at the American Heart Association. We have some pretty rigorous evaluation going on around that. Last, uh, last topic is around workplace health. So we've come to realize Simple 7 is not going to happen by just giving people a card that says this is what you need to do. It's thinking about what changes and how to leverage the places where people breathe. I talked a little bit about community. That's a probably another 30-minute conversation another day. But we've come to realize, as you all have, the workplace is a place where many of us who are adults spend most of our thinking hours during the day, and there may be opportunity to do something there. We developed a paper that said we ought to apply a QI approach with some rigor and some evaluation to what ought to be happening in the workplace and then hold the workplace accountable to that. And the Workplace Health Achievement Index is um, the way that we've gone about doing that. This is a slide that shows that when you look at Life Simple 7 and you break it into three categories of poor average and optimal health, you find that there is a differential in medical care costs that won't surprise you. Higher costs for lower health, um, lower cost for higher health. And that um, um, this is a different study that shows the same. This is the um, way we've gone about developing an index that has seven pillars. Notice the re repetition of the number seven. Seven pillars, 55 elements, evidence based on workplace health. And um, um, this is what we've done with that work. Uh, let me go back. That's kind of short, short shrifting you. This is what we've done with that work. A focus on structure and process, um, looking at the performance outcome we're looking for is Life Simple 7 score um, before and after or longitudinally. Um, a focus on the assessment, looking at where there may be gaps, addressing those gaps, and again, in a QI approach, working with the now 800-plus companies that have um, uh, done and gone through the Workplace Health Achievement Index to make a difference. So I hope that in this very... Um, uh, geez, I'm, I'm tired out from um, kind of walking around and talking. I, I hope that you get a sense, at least a glimpse of... Um, Life Simple 7, the value proposition of focusing on health promotion um, in, in contrast to disease prevention, um, that in fact Life Simple 7 confers not only cardiovascular disease and stroke and vascular disease protection, but protection well beyond that. And um, I hope that the rest of your day um, is good and that none of you falls asleep uh, during the day. So thank you very much. So I think there's time for like maybe one or two questions at most. Yeah, actually, I want to point out the wall clock.
jumps are about two minutes fast, so we have a little more time than maybe. Well, jeez, I'd have gone for one more minute. Do you consider altering the simple seven to a simple eight? with the addition of looking at and, and, and creating the importance of poverty? So that's an awesome question. I thought you were going to go in a different direction because the, 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 so I think that's an awesome question. I, I would love to engage in the exercise of um, looking at the science and being able to, with the degree of confidence that we have about those seven, to, to bring that and, and, and bring that into the conversation. But I will tell you that conceptually, we're there. Conceptually, we're at that place where we want to begin to think about the science behind poverty and health and begin to talk about what are the interventions that we, that we could be doing. Now, where I thought you were going to go with sleep. It, it's come up. Um, and I would tell you that sleep is this really kind of complicated gray zone. We know that too much is not good. We know that too little is probably even worse, but we don't really know what the sweet spot is in between. And we don't know how to, how to describe quality of sleep and all of those things. And there's probably people in here way smarter than I about that, but I saw heads nodding. So I'll go with that. Um, um, any other questions? Yes, sir. Complement what you see, and one of the things that you probably need to add, and I would think it is, we are a culture bombarded by sedentary lives with technology, the food industry. You had to love us against all that, and also the other problem we I noticed because I'm a, a psychotherapist is my patients don't have consistency. The country don't have consistency. You start motivating the people to teach all this thing that you have. A week later, two weeks later, whatever. They don't have consistency. Most programs fall, and you are bombarded by the industry that wants to make money yeah. for the people's health. So something there is missing. Yeah. We need to work on it because the tobacco industry did, yeah. and we got compensated. Yeah. They've gone all the parts of the country. I, I completely agree. So what, what the, the, the questioner commenter is saying is that we need consistency in our messaging. Um, I would say we need not only consistency, we need continuity in our messaging. We can't just sort of do a campaign and go away. Um, and I think what I'm hearing, and I would concur, that the challenges that we had with tobacco, the advertising, sort of the counter messaging, I think what I'm hearing, I'm going to paraphrase, we need we need the um, armamentarium to have the counter messaging that um, uh, goes up against uh, what the food industry puts in our faces, puts in our supermarkets. You know, I used to say a, a while ago, if, if, if only we could uh, have a campaign around Kate the Carrot um, and uh, create Kate the Carrot the, 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 as opposed to um, the uh, uh, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs guy, who everyone here knows. Um, you know, if Kate the Carrot was that popular, that's the sort of thing and that I think you're talking about. People are sitting everywhere instead of walking around, watching technology yep. 24-7, yep. and they just don't want to move. So completely agree that we need to get um, us up off of our butts, and so maybe that's the appropriate place to stop. Everybody stand up <laughs> and shake your booty. And thank you very much. <laughs>